0: Um, If you have a Bible with you, open it to Exodus chapter 20, we're in verses 4 through 6, the second commandment today. We've been in a series in Exodus for as long as anyone can remember, and uh, and we're going through the Ten Commandments together now. Um, Oh, if you don't have a Bible, the text will be on the screen. Uh, You know, it might seem a little curious to some that we are spending so much time on the Ten Commandments, uh, you know, because the Ten Commandments are part of the, the law of God. It's, it's like rulesy, and, uh And we could sometimes have a, have kind of an attitude that sort of like, rules equals not freedom. You know what I mean? And that like, the less rules you have, the more freedom you have. There's many movies along this plot line of like, You know, these old people who have all these rules and the young people destroy the rules and everyone's free and it's fun. (laughs) Here's the thing. Rules don't lead to constriction and not rules don't lead to freedom. Let's do a little thought experiment together, all right? We're all going to go get in our cars and we are going to forget about all the rules that we abide by in an ordinary day as we drive around so one ways traffic lights speed limits the rest of it okay and everybody not just us but everybody is going to say no rules freedom do whatever i want with my car are we free has anybody seen zombie land <laughs> i'm just watching it now there's cars kind of all over the roads that's what it would be like in about 14 minutes and 20 seconds right like no one would be going anywhere at all in a very short amount of time correct but you see you took all the rules away and what happens it, a total lack of freedom happens right you're no you, it is the most constrictive to have no rules at all it does not lead to freedom in fact it leads to just the opposite the question isn't Are rules good or bad, but what are the right rules? What are the rules that actually lead to freedom? Because, right, we have traffic rules. You can go to Moab or whatever. You're not getting a Moab if there's no traffic rules, correct? In the same way, the Ten Commandments, it's not about ruining your fun or constricting your life. This is God's guidance in how we are to live a life of love. The Ten Commandments are not the ten things you do well enough as you're auditioning for heaven. Okay? The grace of Christ is what saves us, period. The Ten Commandments are also not ten things that if you perform them well enough, God loves you more. And is going to make your life go well. That's not what they are. It's an answer to the question, what does it mean to live a life of love? And that is, that is how we're going through them. Um, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll uh, read you. Uh, The second commandment right now, Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6, says this. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we are looking at your commandments, at these very ancient words that you spoke to your people thousands of years ago, that we would see, have our eyes open so that we would get the the wisdom and the heart that's behind it, and that we could walk in love towards you and towards others. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I would like to ruin a movie for you guys right now. Uh, it's not a good movie. It's The set Stepford Wives. Anyone ever see or hear of The Stepford Wives? Yeah, I'm gonna save you about two hours of watching Bette Midler. Yeah, that's right. Let it burn. Let it burn. Whoever likes her, that's fine. All right, so... Basically, the movie is a big setup for the payoff. I'm going to give you the payoff right here. Okay? It's about a couple. I believe it's Matthew Broderick and Nicole Kidman who are from New York. And they want to move to the more idyllic town of Stepford, Connecticut. And in Stepford, Connecticut, you know, like, it's kind of like um, if Switzerland and Disneyland were mashed up together. Like everything's too perfect. You know what I mean? Creepily perfect. Weirdly perfect every blade of grass, right? Every sprinkler's in sync, that sort of thing. You know what I'm talking about? Creepy perfect. And perhaps the most creepy perfect thing about Stepford, Connecticut are the wives of the, the, the husbands in Stepford, Connecticut. Because these women seem to be interested in nothing more than going to aerobics, wearing their best dress, having their hair and makeup done at all times, and most of all, agreeing with their husbands on everything and doing whatever they say. Now, of course, this is this seems really odd and creepy to uh, to Nicole Kidman's character. I think she was an investigative reporter that works for the story, <laughs> um, and so she starts researching who these women were before they lived in Stepford. and she finds out that they were judges and they were entrepreneurs and they were these formidable, high-powered. Women And so, you know, she, this is the whole movie. I'm summing it up for you. It's just like watching it, all right? <laughs> and so you're, you're saying, what is going on? Why are these women this way, right? And the, the entire payoff of the movie, here it is, the husbands of Stepford, Connecticut, liked everything about their wives except the fact that they disagreed with them all the time and had minds of their own. And so these high-powered guys, these very wealthy Uh, you know, scientists, engineers, Disney executives, NASA, whatevers, they came up with what they called the female improvement program, which was to have a microchip implanted in their wives' brains so that they would be perfect. See, any time that they conflicted with these dudes' idea of perfect, they could just tweak it, you know, whatever the microchip does, and voila, their, their wife is perfect for them now. Saved you. The whole, that You've seen the movie. You know what it's about. That, that's really all there is to it. Let me ask you this. Were those guys actually in relationship with their wives? Right? No. But why not? They're like, hey, this works out for me. And she does whatever I want. Thinks whatever I tell her to think. Right? No. Why is that? It's because if someone cannot contradict you, if someone cannot think differently from you, right? if if they think whatever you make them think, you're not in relationship with them, are you? It's an interesting thing. As perverse as that would be to do to a human being, this is something that we do to God. When God, as revealed in Scripture, doesn't quite jive with how we conceive God to be, A lot of the time, we can put God through the deity improvement program, okay? And we say things like, ooh, I I came to this part in scripture where, man, that makes me uncomfortable. Oh, the God I know would never say or do that. The God I know in my heart, I looked in my heart, God's in my heart, and... Yeah, that's, I don't need to pay attention to that bit of scripture. God would never say that, that or do that. It does not fit with who I conceive God to be. And so we just go ahead and, as Mark Twain said, you know, God made man in his image and men returned the favor. Okay? We have a hard time with this. Like, you get people doing extremely iffy biblical interpretation, like, I hear this all the time of like, like this passage that seems to contradict a cultural belief, be it on sexuality or we want to think of God as, you know, God doesn't really care about sin or anything like that. And, and, and we take these Bible passages that seem to point the other way and we kind of just whoop, whoop and very iffy, iffy interpretation. We, we say, hey, now God's perfect because he fits my conception of who he should be. The, the second commandment, right, the, this don't make a graven image, don't make a carved image. Like we might think like, oh, well, I've never done that. Therefore, this is one I've checked off the list. But the thing is, is that when we, when we adjust our conception of God, when we remake God in our own image, It is not accepting God as he is. And the thing is, the heart behind the second commandment is not that God wants to ruin our fun, but that God wants us to truly know him. There's a word in here, several words that make us uncomfortable, but look with me at verse 5 real quick. He says, you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord, that is Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God. Now, that word is a little off, right? Like, ooh, jealous. That makes me uncomfortable. That's what I'm talking about. It's actually not a great translation. Maybe a more accurate translation would be passionate commitment. God is saying, I'm committed. I'm not a two-timer and you can't be either, right? He wants real relationship. He wants us to truly know him and not waste our love on an idol. So we are going to go back to the dartboard. Who remembers the dartboard? I'm going to explain it. The, the Ten Commandments, right, they, we're, we're thinking about them like a dartboard. This is an a analogy that uh, my friend and mentor, Bill Connors, came up with that I'm using freely. Uh, so when you play darts, unless you're a good dart player, you aim for the bullseye, right? If you ever hit the bullseye, like even glancing at it, you're like, woo You know, I don't have much hope of that because... Um, I usually drink beer when I play darts, and that just doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work well with you know, accuracy. So if I hit the board, I'm still real happy with that throw. You know what I mean? But if I hit the wall, I am unhappy with it, right? That's a miss. So the, the Ten Commandments are like that. They tell us, like, like, the heart of it is love. But when we go beyond... Uh, you know, like to an extreme extent, away from love—that's breaking the Ten Commandments. So, just because we don't murder someone, doesn't mean we've honored the image of God. <clears throat> Make sense, right? That's just telling us where the wall is. Well, I haven't killed anybody there. I'm I'm pretty good at loving people. No. <laughs> All right, and so well, that's how we're going to go through this commandment today. And so, if God wants us to know Him, if He wants us to truly know who He is. How is this making of an image contrary to knowing God? How is making an image contrary to knowing God? It's, it's because God doesn't want us to make a false version of the true God, okay? God has not revealed his physical form, whatever that would be. You know, like even the, the this, this, Angel of the Lord that pops up in the Old Testament that seems to be sort of like God's presence, we never have a physical description. Never have a physical description of Jesus. Not one. Nothing. Right? There's intentionality behind that. It's that we don't end up making a false version of him. It's like, oh, I've got to, g- I know he had brown hair, so let's go with that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Also, when, when you look at these graven images of the ancient world, and the, the prophets actually talk about this a lot, they are still, they are blind, they are deaf, right? And that's a misrepresentation of God. When we look at scripture, we look at God's hand throughout history, God is dynamic, God is a spirit. God shows up just before this passage as an earthquake, volcanic, volcanic explosion, thunderstorm. Right, like that's what it is to be in God's presence—not not not this misrepresentative, mute, uh, still idol. It's it's a false version. And here's the other thing: whenever you make a a picture of God, what do what do you end up doing? You end up recasting God in your own image. Have you ever noticed that? Go over and look at look at some of the artistic depictions of God here and there. It's always going to be. God is recast as that cultural moment. You see what I'm saying? So you end up making a false version of the true God. Uh, there's a really important uh, example of this in in the history of Israel. In the book of First Kings, make sure I There we go. In the book of First Kings, there is a king of the north after the kingdom of Israel split. There's a king of the north named Jeroboam. And I know you guys all know this story by heart. No, you don't. So this dude named Jeroboam, and he wants to pull away from Jerusalem and the house of David and all that, right? And so he sets up his own temple. He sets up his own priesthood, and he builds two giant bull idols. And he tells the people this, these bull statues, this is where you come to worship the one true God, Yahweh. He calls these bulls Yahweh, the one who brought you out of Egypt. This is what God says through a prophet to him in 1 Kings 14, 9. It says, you have done evil above all her work who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal images provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. So wait a second. Jeroboam didn't make a, a idol to Marduk or Baal or anything like that. He was making an image of the one true God. But you see, God says that is the same as worshiping another God. It's making a false, false version of the true God. I'll give you an example here. Let's say um, my wife had a picture of David Hasselhoff, like this one. <laughs> There we go. That's my favorite David Hasselhoff, the night Rider David Hasselhoff. That's the one I grew up with. She has this picture of David Hasselhoff, and she calls it Matt Morginsky. <laughs> okay. so that's my name, if you didn't know. And she goes around with this picture and says, this is my husband, Matt Morginski. And people are like, is that a, a picture of your husband, Matt Morginsky?" She's like, no, this is Matt Morginski. And she's taking this picture, like, camping and Kayaking and out to dinner and whatnot. I love you, Matt Morczynski. And you ask her, who are you married to and who do you love? And she's like, Matt Morczynski. Is she? In loving a picture of David Hasselhoff, a false version of me, right? Is she actually building a relationship with me? No, not at all, right? I'm not receiving her love. We're not building relationship. This is what it is to make a false version of the true God. It's to make a replacement version. And and this is not just here in the second commandment. We see cover to cover in the Bible, like the insistence that after, after Christ comes, Paul's like no other gospel, no other Christ. You can't tweak him. You've got to receive it instead, right? And, and we see this, this recasting God in our own image all over the place. I, I remember, um, you know, there was a lot of stories during uh, the last election cycle, these, these like internet prophets that were hearing from God how the, how the election was gonna turn out. Do you guys follow this? Yeah. Do you guys see any of this? These guys were like, before the election, they're like, oh, God has given me a word and, and like Trump's gonna be reelected and, and, right? Like, that's what God wants. It's like, actually, I think that's what you want. Right? Because you want that. That's not contrary to what you want. Could it be <laughs> that you're projecting yourself onto God and remaking God in your own image? Right? And then after Trump loses the election, it's like, I have a word from the Lord. God is angry that you didn't reelect Trump. It's like, so God didn't know we were going to. And now he's angry. Actually, I think that might be you. <laughs> right? I heard this one one person on the radio having a discussion say jesus was certainly a socialist debatable but i also noticed that you're a socialist (laughs) right could it be that really what you're doing is just projecting yourself into god it's it's like the um conquistadors and 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 and, and colonizers and all that right they're like they're like praying and they're like God, do you want us to go and commit genocide? And they're hearing, somehow hearing God be like, yes, go ahead. They're like, oh, God wants us to commit genocide and take over this land. It's like, actually, I think that's what you wanted to do, right? And you're, you're just saying God said it. You're projecting yourself and making a false version of God, you know? Or people are like, you know, God's just super chill and is like believes whatever he wants and believes about me, you know? It's like, well, I also noticed that you're super chill and you think people should just believe whatever they want about God. Could it be that that's not God at all? That instead, you're projecting yourself and making an idol. You're making a false version of the true God. And this, this is the problem. Like, I'm all for people listening to God just in an experiential way saying, God, speak to me. And I believe God does speak to us. However, if what God says to us does not match who God is revealed to be, we have to ask, like, oh, am I making an idol right now? Right? The the look in my heart, the the God I know, or I feel like God would. If we're not in agreement with what God has already said about himself, we need to be very careful there. Because we are in danger of making a false version of the true God. And what does it say in verse 5? He says, I'm a jealous, uh, he says, uh, visiting the iniquity on the fathers of the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Worshipping a false version of the true God is to show hatred to God. And God wants us to truly know him. And so that's what it is to break it. It's to set up a false version of the true God. But how do we, how do we keep it? How do we keep The second commandment not to make a false version of the true god well it's to accept god's revelation revelation means god tells us who he is right think of it like this who's not shy jess isn't shy all right so i don't know some of you guys know jess but let's say that i was like i was like okay i'm gonna tell all you guys about jess Crandall right now i'm gonna look in my heart Find Jess in my heart, okay? And Jess, she loves punk rock. And Jess eats a lot of spicy food. And Jess's favorite ball player is Kobe Bryant. Am I right about any of those things? <laughs> Two out of three. What was I right about? You like punk rock? Really? I didn't know. But here's the thing. We've never, never had the conversation about bad brains, okay? We haven't gotten to that stage in our relationship. But here's the thing. If I, let's say she, she's like, no, actually, you're wrong. And I'm wrong about a couple of those things. I'm like, quiet, Jess. I'm finding Jess in my heart, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm talking to the Jess in my heart, and this is who you are. That's really dishonoring to someone, isn't it? If they're like, no, I'll tell you about myself. What's the honoring thing to do to truly know somebody? It's to let them tell you who they are. And God tells us who he is through, through three sources. The first one is creation, all that God has made. Psalm 19 one says this, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. You should all read Psalm 19. It is beautiful, talking about how our our creator is revealed through creation. And those of you who are in the sciences studying the natural world, whether that's at the microscopic level or the macroscopic level or what have you, we are we are we are going further in knowing God through the created world. That that is a really good thing. And so we can know true things about God. Through creation itself however it's unspecific right like if you're if you're sitting there contemplating trees and vines you're never going to be like and god became a man and he went to the cross for my sin and rose again you're not going to get there are you you're not going to get a whole lot of specifics and so the the second source of god's revelation is the the scriptures 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, or 15 says this, says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We believe that the scriptures have human authors, but that God has breathed this book out. He has inspired it. That God is within these pages speaking to us and showing us who he is. And so... Um, it, that's why, you know, like Grace and Peace, we, we put a lot of stock, we put a lot of time into understanding the Bible well. Because to understand what God is saying through Scripture, we get to know God more and more. And of course, the most important uh, um, source of God's revelation is Jesus himself. Okay, uh, In Colossians, what, what, what uh, Zach read for us earlier, says this, says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. It goes on to say, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And so Jesus is God revealed as a human being, which of course the witnesses to that we have in the scriptures. So for us to truly know God, which is what God wants, to not set up a false version of God is to accept God's revelation. How many people here enjoyed this verse about God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the third and fourth generation of the children. I don't like it. It, I find it a bit vinegary, right? But that's a perfect example. We don't get what that's about necessarily. We'll talk about it in a minute. But like at first blush, you read that, I'll read it again for you just to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> you shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so we come across a verse like that or many others throughout the scriptures and we say, oh, I don't like that necessarily. That doesn't totally jive with my conception of God. Which one's going to give? Are you going to are you going to sort of ignore the scripture? Are you going to remake God, or is your conception of God going to change? Right. That that's what it is to accept uh, to accept revelation. Um, there's a current movement, and it, it's it's enough in our culture to where it's good to talk about it. So, in sort of the publishing world and the podcasting world and the. Is there still a blogosphere? Do we still use blogosphere, or is that a little 2008? It's a weird word. I hate those saying it. blogosphere? But, you know, this whole thing about deconstructing the faith. Okay? And, and, and the, the, the there's part of it that's like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we need to do part of that. Because it's saying that sort of Americanized Christianity is largely the product of, like, a, a sort of white middle-class mentality, right? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Where every culture has its blind spots, looking back through all of history. And, uh, and yeah, we need to be aware of those things and where we find things that are not from the scriptures, we, we, that, that definitely needs to be deconstructed to use that dumb word. Um, but here's the thing is that the people who are advocating this sort of thing are recommending not just sort of being aware of your cultural blind spots, but they're talking about upending like 4,400 years of Christian and Jewish thought, calling into question the scriptures themselves, saying, oh, they don't know about God like I do. Okay, But here's the thing. Unbeknownst to a lot of people, and you guys may be into some of these authors, uh, they are unwittingly using uh, what's called critical scholarship, which came to us from Germany in the 1800s. And they're also using a French literary theory, which I don't get, despite Caleb Coho's best efforts to explain it to me, uh, called deconstructionism, Jacques Derrida and Michel Foucault, these French guys right, of the last century, of the, the 20th century. And when you look at who's actually writing the books and doing the podcasts, who is it? It's a bunch of middle-class, college-educated people who are, who are remaking the Christian faith to please 21st century Western progressives. Does that seem like the way to get back to the heart of what, what the scriptures are saying? You realize that the first five centuries, the main theologians of the Christian faith were African. Right? Africa dominated the, the, the theological writing of, of that 500-year that period. And the scriptures itself and the origins of the faith, of course, come to us from the continent of Asia. And so it's like, do I need to go on about this? This is kind of, this is kind of important, right? Like, think about this. A bunch of modern Westerners. Who are educated, highly educated, and that sort of thing, and well-to-do, are going to call into question and overturn and correct the theological work and the writings of Scripture of people from the ancient world who were African and Asian. Does that work? Is that is that is that is that improving the whole like middle-class white thing? No, it's not. it's it's, it's a solution that's far worse than the problem. The actual solution is that we receive revelation. First of all, receive revelation in community. It is really important for us to see cultural blind spots. In particular, I'm talking about majority culture, white people in the U.S., because you don't ever bother seeing things from other people's points of view. When you're middle class and educated, you don't think you need to hear from the poor and the oppressed. When you're liberal, you don't think you need to hear from conservatives, and conservatives don't think they need to hear from liberals. And modern people are very smug and don't think we need to listen to the ancients. But the way for us to actually have our blind spots pointed out is to listen to the entire family of God throughout history, throughout the globe, and throughout every economic strata. Okay? And the other thing is to accept God's revelation when we don't like it. I'm not saying that you can work out to your satisfaction every part of scripture that hits you the wrong way. I am saying that for us to keep the second commandment is to be willing to live with some of the tension, to be willing to live with not totally knowing, not totally getting it and still saying, but I'm not going to recast God in my image. Okay. So that's, Breaking it, making a false version of the true God. Keeping it is to receive God as he reveals himself. And then what is the bullseye? Well, the bullseye is to know and love God as he truly is. To know and love God as he truly is. We have not gotten there. We will not get there. The scriptures have some prophecies about what it's like when, when we actually know God as he is. Isaiah eleven nine 9 says this, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. The, the true knowledge of God, to truly understand who God is and to know him relationally, is transformative. It, is, it will not just transform us, but the entire, the entire world. This is part of why this is so important that we don't set up a false God. And so for us to move towards the bullseye is to not just say, hey, I'm going to live with this tension, but that we, we, we take those parts that are hard for us to accept, and we move towards, hey, actually, this makes me love God even more. Um, you know, like, some of you guys are, are recently married, right? Huh? Huh? Yeah, you know. When you Before you're married, you think you really know somebody, but then you move in together and you start living together for a while and then you find out what's for real. Mm -hmm. And I I asked permission to share this at some point. (laughs) So Sharon and I got married, moved in together, right? And and at first she had a really cleansing effect because I was a sloppy bachelor, you know, that's okay. I have repented. But I started noticing that there would be random half coffee and teacups left in the, in the weirdest places, like under a couch or on a windowsill with a curtain over it, right? And I was like, what the heck? What's going on? I'd be like, I was like dude, could you, could you just put away your, you know, dump these out? Because some of them would, would start growing. And by the time you found them, there'd be like a, culture and an economy going on inside of this cup, right? Like, it, it, it was solid. It was no longer liquid. You, you know what I mean? And, and I was driving me nuts. I was like, dude, this is disgusting. And she's like, yeah, I'll, I'll try and work on that. But I'm not making it. It's like, she's never said, yes, I will. It's always the <laughs> one. Sounds like an issue, not an ish me, you know? <laughs> and and it, was, it was really frustrating. I think my mic went out my icon, this thing on. It's okay. First of all, I'm loud. Second of all, have got to back up. There we go. Um, and so after a while, I just said, I have to accept this, even though I don't like it. But then it started becoming downright funny because I named them. They're called Sharons. And I'd be like, oh, I found a Sharon. Look, this one has your eyes. And we'd laugh about it, right? And it became one of those things that, that like only I knew about her. And now you do. <laughs> but it, it, it became an endearing thing. right? This thing that was like driving me nuts at first. Like, I don't want to accept this. This is gross. To, it makes me love her more. I haven't found a Sharon in a little bit. I'm a little disappointed there. But the more that we grow, The more that we are contemplating who God has revealed himself to be through creation, through the scripture, through Jesus, we learn to not only accept these difficult parts, but they become a reason to love God more. Let's talk about these verses 5 and 6 real quick. Okay? This You shall not bow down on them or serve them, for I, Yahweh your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands, that could be thousands of generations, I think appropriately understood, that's what it is, of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay? So, those of us, who are, my, myself included, like we, we latch on to that, that, visiting the iniquity, that seems unfair, Right, but let's let's actually take the time to think about what this text is trying to tell us about God and why we don't make a graven image. Right, it, it's not like, it's not like this is being what's called analytic, right? Like, hey, how how cold is it outside? And you know, like the engineer gives me, well, it is seventy one point <laughs> seven, because he has to deal in analytic, right? And someone else might be like, it's cold, and someone else might be like 71's not cold, but you get the point, right? And then this is what's called poetic speech, all right? This is not like precision engineering analytic speech. It's not like, you know, oh, this person hated me. This is generation two after them. They love me. But you know what? I'm still going to mess with them because it's not generation three or four yet. That's not what it's saying. Right? In the same way, it's like I keep, I keep loving faithfulness right? to, to, to thousands of generations. It's not like, well, this person loved me, and now we're at generation 998 of people hating me. All right, I've got two more, and then it's so over. Like, that's not what this text is communicating. What it's saying is that God, he is a God who has judgment, Right? That judgment of God is the final end of evil. He's not going to simply dismiss evil. But when you compare his judgment to his loving, uh, his, his steadfast love, it's like a thousand to a three or a four. You see what it's saying now? And his steadfast love is so much more beautiful when you realize that his judgment is present as well. This God who is capable of judgment this judgment that ends all evil forever, that is only a three or four for him and his loving kindness is in the thousands. It's actually a reason to know not only know him more and accept it but to love him more because God wants us to truly know him. Think of what that means. This is this is not a God who simply wants us to know Him as a a boss or a king, but, but like as a father, with us as His children. There was a uh, a book that came out some years ago by uh, by a guy named Joel Siegel. Anybody remember Joel Siegel? He was the uh, movie critic on um, Good Morning America, and um, he was a funny guy. He found out on his on the same day when he was 57 years old that he was going to be a father for the first time and that he had terminal cancer found out both on the same day and so he started writing a book because he wanted his son to know him and if you ever pick up this book I I went and got it um, like the personality of the guy is all over it Right? He tells him stories about his life, how when he was at UCLA, he brought in Dr. King as a speaker, got to meet him, right? Uh, he tells him what happened in his first marriage. He, his humor is all over the place. He's a really funny guy. He has a whole, he was Jewish, and he has this whole glossary of Yiddish. It's great. You should read <laughs> it just for that. There's a, a chapter on sex, which is one sentence, go ask your mother but he he fills it with guidance and all these things, right? Not because he's trying to be some sort of like bugbear to his kid. It's because he knew he wasn't going to be around and he wanted his son to know him, right? That's the heart of the second commandment is that God wants us to truly know him. Let's not settle for a false version of God that we set up ourselves. Instead, let's accept God as he reveals himself and also walk walk with God so that we know and love him more. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that this could be a path we walk, that we would move closer and closer to true love, that these things that are so often difficult for us to understand and accept would be reasons for us to love you even more. I pray, God, that you would work among us as your people We can be people who truly know you and truly love you. In Jesus' name, amen.